Salutations, everybody. It is Maddie here today with episode 189 of the Ham Radio Podcast. And it's me, Carrick, with ACG. I can't do this. Okay, so pretty much Carrick at the last minute had something pop up. It's a family-related issue. So he had to take this episode off. I had some patrons volunteer, but then I had to redo the entire overlay to make that happen, which would have delayed it into the live stream that I do after my podcast episodes now because I established a Twitch schedule, so I stream from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So it just got a little chaotic, and I decided... I'm going to have to do this entire podcast by myself, which I've actually never tried to do, and only a few patrons will be familiar with solo shows from me, because I do have a personal podcast, I call it, on the Patreon, where I pretty much sit there and just go over everything not gaming-related, pretty much movies, books, what I'm up to, gym routines, all that stuff, and so... Those people will be familiar with me running a show literally by myself, but a lot of you aren't, so this may be a shorter episode than most because it's just me. I'm not bouncing my thoughts off of, for example, Carrick, where he can give me a a word vomit in my direction for an extra couple of minutes. I can take a break to think. So we'll see how this goes, but anyway, welcome to episode 189 of the Ham Radio Podcast. As always, if you want to support the show, keep the lights on. You can flick a buck. I wish I had Carrick here to complete the flick a buck jingle, but he is sadly not around. Anyway, uh, if you do flick a buck at the Patreon, patreon.com slash Plays, you can get early access to this podcast. Um, You can also get the patron-exclusive videos. You can hop into Discord. You can chat with me. You can chat with an excellent community. Easily my favorite part of this entire Patreon gig is the Discord. They are the best people. There were three people who were instantly ready to hop into this show and try to make it happen. Sadly, I couldn't do it on my end unless there was going to be a lot of time constraint happening and rushing, and I would have had to probably skip dinner, which also probably not the healthiest choice, right? A lot of YouTubers sacrifice their health for their jobs, but it's never, 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 never worth it. Just always take care of yourselves. Anyway, Usually during the introduction, I like to just ask Carrick what he's up to, but I wanted to share with everyone a, a personal story, an encounter I had to get the show started, to, to set the vibe for the rest of the episode. And it was so impactful, I just wanted to talk about it. And then we'll get into what was an amazing week in gaming news. I mean, we're talking about Kingdom Hearts, Outer Worlds, Apex Legends, Capcom, and the Disney-EA relationship. And I'm very opinionated on each of these topics. Really excited to talk about all of them. So do stay tuned, and I hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. Anyway, it's story time now. So Valentine's Day is coming up. It's actually my first Valentine's Day ever with someone. I've been dating my girlfriend now for 11 months, and actually our 11 month, I should say, is on Valentine's Day. So I'm getting flowers for her because we're not getting a ton of gifts or anything. We just want to spend time together. We're just that type of couple. Anyway, uh, personal stuff aside, I'm going to get these flowers, and I'm at the flower shop. This lady asks me there. She's like, what's the occasion? Why are you getting flowers? Um, She's a bit older, so I was just like, oh, I'm getting flowers for my girlfriend because I said I was getting them for the 12th so I could pick them up, have them, and all that stuff. And she was like, you know, every day should be like Valentine's Day when you're with someone you love. And she walked away. And at first I thought she was kind of saying it like she was throwing shade. Like I was one of those guys who only treats their girlfriend well on Valentine's Day. And that's always been like a rule in my household between uh, my mom and my grandmother is always like, you know, don't bother treating me well one day of the year if you can't treat me well every single day of the year. And it's something that's always been a part of who I am. So, you know, when I'm dating my girlfriend, I I absolutely treat her with the utmost respect and love and care. Um, And also because she does it in return. But anyway, I thought she was throwing shade at me, but then she came back and we started talking again. And she started telling me about her husband of 44 years and how uh, she gets a little sad around this time of the year because uh, he's been passed now for 11 years, she said. 
and she was telling me how you know he always used to just take good care of her. He was a good person, um, you know, and he'd do things like what I was doing, which was just getting a little flour, even though uh, I didn't really have to because my girlfriend decided she wanted to cook for me, um, and that was kind of the little thing we were doing. I decided to go the extra mile and just you know get a flower and just commemorate the day, get it sprayed her favorite color, just a cute little thing. Um, and she started sharing that story with me, and then she started asking me about uh, my job, what I do, and my college student. I told her I graduated. I told her that um, I had done this for a living, and um, you know, I, and she asked me what my girlfriend does, and I told her what she was up to, and she's like, you know, we're very blessed to have these types of lives, um, and and you know, every day is a gift, and it was just a really impactful conversation to have with a complete stranger. And and before I left, she'd give me a big hug, and uh, I could feel like a genuine warmth from that person. And um, it was just really, like I said, it was really awesome to have. You know, I think people who do that stuff, they go out of their way and have those types of conversations with people, even though they don't know my story, they don't know anything, they just want to talk with me. And, and I pretty much got to know the lady just like that. Uh, it was awesome, right? You know, and, and she left me with some, some wisdom, too, of, of just how important it is to cherish what you have, um, which resonates with me pretty well right now because I, I do have a, a relative in the hospital um, who is likely passing soon. So I, I just wanted to pass on that message to everyone else because I think there's a reason why things like that happen, right? I, 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 I personally believe that type of way, so I'm like, you know what? If this happened to me, I feel I should pass on that message, that feeling, that story to my audience, which can reach a decent amount of people. So I hope that resonated with you like I felt it did um but anyway this intro has gone on long enough thank you for just sitting through that and now let's get into our first news bit it begins with the kingdom hearts 3 sales so kingdom hearts 3 surpassed 5 million sales in week one i'm gonna have to stop and take drink uh breaks by the way so <laughs> just know if i stop talking you hear a little gulp that's me having a sip of water if you're not watching the video version so kingdom hearts 3 5 million sales week one I, I kind of want to say that I can't say I'm surprised, but in a way I am, right? Because this game has been in development for so long, and you know there's a lot of hype, but a lot of that hype stems from a community of people who have been waiting 14 years for the next numbered entry in the Kingdom Hearts franchise. And so you wonder how big that group of people is, because sometimes the internet can be very loud, even if it's a small group of people. So I was very surprised to see 5 million people picked it up. Um, for me personally, I have been playing this game quite a bit. I had just finished Big Hero 6. I'm not going to spoil anything, by the way, but I will say the last two worlds in Kingdom Hearts 3 uh, from all the Disney worlds, those last two are my favorites in the entire game next to Tangled. I really like Toy Story, but the voice acting in some of these worlds, like Soli's voice acting, uh, Woody's voice acting, there's just some roles that are awful. They did a very bad job picking them. I'm talking like when you use the reaction command, for those of you who are playing Kingdom Hearts 3, when you do the reaction command for uh, <laughs> for for Toy Story, and they're on the rocket, and they're like, ha-ha, ha-ha, ha-ha. Like, it's like, oh, okay, what are we doing here? Why did we? Why did they let that go through? It, it's it's almost so memeable that that's probably why they left it there. But anyway, 5 million sales, uh, th that's why it partially surprises me. I, I thought that this would be a game that did well, but 5 million in week one, I I'd imagine this game at this rate will easily surpass the 8 to 9 million mark uh, over the course of the year. There was a lot of hype starting to drive this game, and I think a lot of people who are going to be buying it are folks who just love Disney and see Disney characters and go, oh my god, and I can do this, this, and that with them. I can have 
I can have Mike Wazowski on my team. I can have uh, who, who else can you have on your team in that game? I'm blanking out right now. I guess I'll go with Soli. Uh, this is what happens. See, like, Carrick will pick me up when I'm struggling like that. And now I have to save myself for an episode. <coughs> um, on top of that, I feel that Kingdom Hearts 3 is doing well because of its gameplay. A lot of people always get so focused on the fact that video games have to be these strong storytelling mediums that have to deliver something of immense impact. And Kingdom Hearts 3 um, has a pretty convoluted story, but it has really strong characters where... I think people can connect with those characters quite a bit. Uh, that's one thing I do like with Kingdom Hearts 3 storytelling is it's still a bit convoluted, but it's formulaic, so it becomes easy to digest. So what happens is you have, like, the Disney storyline in the world, and then after the world finishes, you catch up on what Riku and Mickey are up to. They further the storyline for, like, what's happening with the black box, what's happening with the organization, and each time they do that, and there's an organization member dedicated to each world. So they actually did a good job of trying to remove the clutter from the storytelling, which I think will click with a lot of new fans. Um, but what's also happening with Kingdom Hearts 3 is I'm seeing so many people who have never played Kingdom Hearts before play 3, hop into it, and hate the game because they don't get it. That's um, And there are people out there on the internet with voices, like seriously big platforms who are like, this sucks and I can't play this game. And to those people, I mean, I gotta say, like, I, I know I'm a big Kingdom Hearts fan. I mean, if you want to check back on my channel, I've been making Kingdom Hearts 3 videos for years. And I just kick back as a fan as Western RPGs are what grew on my channel, not Japanese role-playing games. Um, so I, I just enjoy my JRPGs mostly quietly. I, I cover them a decent amount more now, but I focus my coverage more so on Western titles. Anyway, um, these people with huge platforms will, will like, pretty much hate on the game, which is fine. If you don't like the game, that's that's fine. But you have to have the right information. You know, if, if you're going to complain that Kingdom Hearts 3, as a newcomer, you don't understand, it's like, bro, you got eight games, I think, before that to, to play and understand. Because what happens in Kingdom Hearts 3 is they pull from every single one a little bit. They pull from Recoded. They pull from DDD in the beginning of the game. They pull from 2 a bit. They pull from, what other spinoffs? Birth by Sleep, certainly. They're, they're ones they pull a lot more than... From than others, but there's like a little reference to every single Kingdom Hearts game. Like, it's very important that you understand the series. I don't know how many people look at a third entry and go, okay, I will buy Kingdom Hearts 3 because the third entry clearly is a good starting point. Like that, it has been in the news cycle, it has been in discussions, it is probably a headline on multiple articles. You cannot play Kingdom Hearts 3 if you have not played any prior Kingdom Hearts games. And a lot of people always start off their complaints. Hey, I haven't played these games before, but I don't like them. And I just think to myself, well, why are you why are you playing the game? Because there's no chance you get it, right? That's 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 crazy talk. But you know, congrats to Square Enix. I'm glad that it's doing well. The the one thing I am concerned about is does this have a bit of a Final Fantasy 15 effect? Because 15 did really well. But the issue with 15 it was it was in development for so long that it ended up crashing and burning as we saw and they canceled a bunch of dlc episodes and they couldn't make their money back so yes kingdom Hearts 3 has roared out of the gate which is very good to see but is it good enough where down the line part of me we'll see them make up the difference because kingdom Hearts 3 got announced in what 2013 i think with like a little trailer and now we're looking at the game here in 2019 so about six years of development 
Um, they had to switch engines. There was a lot of big changes with this game as well, which I, I, I once again wonder, especially with how DLC is going to be structured, are they going to do what they did with 15 and add a, a multiplayer expansion of some kind to try to, I guess, add some type of pay as a, games as a service uh, method to make up some of that difference, to make some extra money? Because naturally, in my opinion, the best way to be doing DLC for Kingdom Hearts would be adding additional worlds and letting you explore those fully. Add like a Star Wars world or something. I know that's one that some folks are, no, never do that. And some folks are like, yeah, why the hell not? Um, personally, I'd be very keen on seeing something like that. But that's like the first Pixar thing that comes to my head. Or first, I'm sorry, first Disney thing that comes to my head. Um, Pixar-wise, it was always Toy Story, which is why I'm so happy that that was one of the first worlds in Kingdom Hearts 3. I really like the Toy Story world in Kingdom Hearts 3, just like I said, some of the voice acting and the lack of Disney villain boss fights uh, up until later on in the game, there's a little bit more, but the lack of Disney villain boss fights just, mm, it's not like the boss fights become bad because they're not there, it's just huge oversights, a missed opportunity, humongous missed opportunity, I feel like it boils down to rights, like not having a certain, I can't say it, I don't want to spoil anything, but don't worry about that. Anyway, Kingdom Hearts 3, doing really well right off the bat. Congrats to Square Enix. Hopefully it continues to do well. Um, it came out to some pretty glowing reviews, um, most saying that the gameplay was excellent, some saying that the story wasn't that great, uh, never gained traction. I personally find the organization side of things the most interesting. I think that um, it's really interesting when some of the Disney worlds they continue after the movie like big hero 6 i believe is after the movie uh so is monsters inc i, I think that type of stuff is really cool and it gets me invested like it feels like this is the the sequel to a movie that i never got or something along those lines so that type of stuff is great anyway let's move on to topic number two this one is the outer worlds which you know we've been talking about on the channel quite a bit lately i am i'm so excited for this game but with that excitement, it seems to be bearing down in Obsidian. So, as a lot of us know, Game Informer announced that they're going to be doing a month of coverage for The Outer Worlds, which is hype. Hype for me, hype for the channel, hype for all of you, because we get to talk about this game we're all really looking forward to, and a lot of Bethesda fans have really gravitated towards this game, because it seems to be the, the New Vegas sequel, in a sense, that we never got. Not that it's a Fallout game, but it's akin to... New Vegas in that style where it's highly replayable and we're going to go back and back and back and also seeing that they're changing their stance on modding and they're looking to do more of that yeah people are, are going to get really excited for this game but there was one video that came out from Game Informer about the Outer Worlds that I really want to focus on for our headline on the podcast that being that the Outer Worlds expectations and uh, managing hype because there was a video discussion, it was with uh, Tim Kane and Leonard Boyarsky. They've been kind of the faces of this whole entire bit of coverage um, for this game. And they were saying that they're happy people are excited, but they want them to be excited for the right things. They said they've seen comments saying this game's going to be 100 hours long. This game is going to be, you know, huge open world sandbox. And they're like, that's not our game. And, and uh, the Game Informer guy asked, would it be reasonable to expect hey, I can beat this between 50, 15 to 40 hours, and I think Tim Kane, or no, it was Leonard who said, yeah, around there, would sound about right. They said they never put a number on the game because they said we had someone who got through the beginner area in 45 minutes to an hour, and then someone who took three hours in there, or four hours in there. 
So I get that because it really seems to be the type of game that depends on how deep do you want to go. Do you just literally want to burst through the main story? Because I know Carrick has a patron. Um, I think his name's Wretch, who he does uh, the international podcast with Carrick. And I know he's the type of guy who doesn't really go for a lot of the side content, and he goes straight through the main story. So will the Outer Worlds for him be something like a 15, 12-hour experience? Possibly. Versus me, where I'm going to go into every single crevice and corner of this game because I'm pumped because it's the type of game I just resonate with as someone who loves KOTOR, and this game is highly resembling the level and world structure of a KOTOR game. I'm going to be all over it, talking to every NPC, research, uh, searching every building, talking and seeing all the choices, all the consequences. It's just my type of game. My experience will probably be the max amount of hours you can have in a playthrough, because, like, for example, KOTOR 2. You can breeze that game in like 20 hours, I'd say. But for me, those games always end up being like 32 hours because I can't just leave things undone. Part of it's the type of person I am. I, I gotta just do everything. I love doing everything in the game. Like I feel, I feel like I'm, I'm cheaping out if I if I just try to skip over things, which makes me a good reviewer. I'm very thorough. I'm very thorough in my process. That's why um, you'll see reviews sometimes come out late for me because I I could push it out. I could rush it. But your $60 is valuable, right? So I got to make sure I do a good job. And even if like four people are taking my recommendation and saying, okay, this game is good and I'm going to buy it, I could be misleading four people. So I'd rather do diligence, make sure I I put all the time I possibly can in, feel like I have a well-developed opinion, and then go from there. Anyway, the point of this video, like I said, was we saw a lot of focus on hype with this. and, And Obsidian seems to keep like backing down, like, be excited. If you like traditional RPGs, you like our RPGs, you should be excited. And if you, you're excited, you play it for those reasons and you don't like it, that falls on them. But they said they want you to not be disappointed because it's not what you thought it would be. So I've covered this game a lot. I think my audience knows quite well this game is going to be like a 30-hour, 25-hour experience that you replay. So you could probably get like at least... 50 hours out of this game, I'd say minimum, because you're, to see the, let's say we're, we're just going to look at this very good, bad, you're going to do a good guy playthrough, a bad guy playthrough, and for that, that's 50 hours, if we're, we're saying each playthrough is 25 hours, and you're just simply picking good, 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 bad, 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 then yeah, you could probably squeeze a good 50 to 60 hours out of this game, but then it also depends on things like the structure of the narrative is very similar to New Vegas, so we have all these corporations, just like in New Vegas, where we have all these people vying for the strip. So in New Vegas, you can do an NCR playthrough, a Legion playthrough, and so on. And perhaps in the Outer Worlds, you can do a uh, Auntie Cleo's playthrough. You can do a Spacer's Choice playthrough, something along those lines. You can do a stupid character playthrough. They seem to invest their resources in having a lot of density in the choice you can have in quests, where you they, they rely on the player to go... Hmm, what would have happened if I did X, Y, or Z during that scenario? And to come back after they roll credits, go to that scenario, and see how things played out. Personally, I think that's the best type of freaking video game you can ask for. But that's not for everybody. Point being is you just have to be aware with what you're buying. And there are situations we see in, in game development where 
marketing just completely misleads consumers and it is so frustrating and youtubers press alike are pretty quick to call that out but then there is the situation where we have a game like the outer worlds which has a tremendous amount of excitement especially from the bethesda community because we're we're coming hot hot off a game from bethesda game studios that uh didn't do that well and now people are looking for where to go next and we got our answer way faster than we could have expected right we were a lot of people ready to give up and just be like fuck this we're never gonna get an rpg like new vegas again and boom we get it not even a month after the release of fallout 76 so people were quick to just jump ship all right i'm on the outer world type train this is what i want and so that's a little bit of extra pressure for obsidian but i think they're doing a good job bearing it down it's just Interesting to see that being the focus of the coverage from Game Informer, right? You have a press site coming in for a month of coverage, month worth of coverage. And your choice as a you know, communications director, PR, is to bear down some of the hype, to augment expectations. And so I thought deeper. I was like, what does that mean for the product? Are they confident? Or do they feel like they see so many people excited for the wrong reason that they have to react to it? I think it's more so option two. I think they know they're making a really good game. And I think they've seen good games go down the tubes because they were good for one reason, but not what it was marketed to be good at, if that makes sense. Like imagine if, this is a very extreme example, you're watching all this promotion material for a fighting game and it turns out to be a open world game with very shitty fighting mechanics right it's like what what this isn't what i signed up for i signed up for the other thing that's what they're trying to avoid i think um but i think it's very clear in these trailers i mean we haven't seen like these huge shots of like an open landscape going look at everything you can explore a lot of the the gameplay we've seen for this title has been condensed into areas and a lot of it screams like old school to me in a good way like like PS3 360 RPG sense where it's like New Vegas. You know, the, the game kind of pauses in the background, but the camera zooms in on the person talking to you. Facial animations are a little stiff, and there's a lot of dialogue. Like, that's that's not like, a, we'll say, a, a Witcher 3 or something like that where there's moving movement in the cutscenes and all that stuff, and there's timers for choices at times when you have to make like a really quick, intense decision. Uh, it's very different in that sense. It's And so I feel like it's so apparent that it's hard to imagine where people get these um, um, these mis- misconceptions of the title. My guess is it's a combination of hype, like what they want to see based off what they saw in the gameplay, and it's sort of twisting the image to, to what they hope it ends up being and, and then feeling their hype. Um, as someone who's done a lot of speculation on the channel, you guys know that, I still love speculating, but I always remind people, don't take your own speculation as fact. Don't speculate so much and buy into your own visions that you're excited about something that is non-existent. I did this with Cyberpunk three times, I think, already. And I'll probably do it a fourth and fifth time as we get closer to launch. I, I will always remind people, like, look, Cyberpunk, for example. Hype as shit for that game. That looks phenomenal. But a lot of people are like, I'm excited for X, Y, and Z. 
I'm excited to do tricks on my on my car, and I'm and I'm excited to deck it out with all the X, Y, and Z accessories. And we don't even know what the accessories are or how deep the car customization goes. It's like no. Don't be excited for that. Like, be excited for car customization because it's confirmed. Don't be excited for what you can hope to do with car customization because we don't know what happens there, right? And that's the thing with a lot of these games, like Outer Worlds. Know what you're excited for. That's why I always tell people, know what you're excited for. If that's if you know and you're excited for that, then great. But if you're just getting pumped up over nothing that that exists, then you're being your own worst enemy, you know? I get consumer frustration, but there comes a point where a consumer has to take fault and understand like, oh, okay, I I was not delivered the wrong message here. I mean, when Obsidian's putting out a video saying like, hey, dial it down because you are excited for open world RPG. We are making condensed level to level areas like a KOTOR 2, which is hype. That's amazing. I, I, am, I am fired up, but I know not everyone's a huge KOTOR fanboy like me. Um... But yeah, man, I, I felt like that was something worth addressing because expectation management, that's a smart way to approach it. It's just that I, I just wonder what it means for the product. You know, are they confident in what they have or because what happens is usually you see like a, a company go all in on the, the love for their game. Like, hey, if people are hyping us up, let's get more hype. Let's see some crazy out of this world shit. Let's let's make tons of money off of this game. Um and they do, but then there's times where that also hurts the, the company image. So uh, it seems like this is a company with some morality who understands the situation well. They've watched around them how they can lose loyalty in a snap. I mean, I feel like if we were looking, even in 2015, after the launch of uh, Fallout 4, where you know Bethesda lost some fans, but it was more so because they made a game that was... I mean, we thought that was divisive, but Fallout 76 was really divisive. But at the time... You know, we would look at that game and go, all right, like, some people love it, some people hate it. It's just that type of game. But I didn't think years from then we'd be looking at a company that literally lost pretty much all consumer trust and had built up a pedigree since 2003, I'd say, and lost so much of that and have brought so many question marks to themselves with one, technically two game launches. And some weird decisions like Creation Club and whatnot. That that is why I feel they're making this choice to to, to knock down the hype. Not just because of BGS, but I think that's like an excellent example of wow, you can have this excellent pedigree and it doesn't matter. Think of Rockstar, right? They have made some of the most revolutionary games that this industry has ever seen, and they did it again last year with Red Dead. But for some folks, that doesn't matter. Some folks will still tear them down because Red Dead Online, even if it's in a beta, isn't that fun. And GTA Online with its shark cards and its grinding is horrendous. And there's a lot of people who love GTA Online. More power to them. I don't think it's bad. But the grind for GTA Online is ever-present. And that bothers a lot of folks. And that drives them away from their product. And that does damage the company image. That is there for Rockstar, who has revolutionized the industry time and time again and sells millions and millions of copies. I mean, I guess it doesn't hurt them because we we saw Red Dead Redemption 2 sell 22 million copies. It just launched, what, at this point in time? Is Red Dead the end of October? So four months? Wow. About three and a half months as we record this, but that's crazy. 22 million copies that fast, and its online version isn't even fully finished. That's ridiculous. Um, I think, I think Obsidian knows the position they're in though. They are 
heading into a, what what seems like a bright future. They're, they've announced a game that people are really excited for. They have the potential to sell a lot of copies for that. They have financial security. They're working with Microsoft. Microsoft doesn't seem to be willing to compromise what Obsidian is good at. Microsoft also acquired In Exile. So that's another top-tier RPG developer. I think Microsoft knows that these are people who care about games and are genuine. And so in turn, I think Obsidian's looking to retain that positive company image that they have. Because I think that's another reason why they're, they're, they, they think people are so excited for this game. is because many people approach Obsidian, even if they don't think that New Vegas is that great, they'll approach them as the heroes of the day who, who make the games for the people. Right, because like people will look at Bethesda, because like a, a lot of this comes back to Bethesda, right? Because as Fallout 4 launched, New Vegas became the definitive Fallout game, and and we'd always compare it back to that, and what Fallout 4 could have done better. And then Bethesda goes deeper into the Fallout 4 holding, makes Fallout 76, which is further from New Vegas than anything could possibly be, aside from some bugs, right? <laughs> and so, yeah, man, I just I think that even if you don't like Fallout in New Vegas, you see Obsidian making the games that, and the RPGs that people from that fandom want, and in turn, people will just join Obsidian side because they want to see Bethesda burn. I don't say that in a way like how dare they, but I, I say it like people don't like Bethesda, and so they vote with their wallet. Um, but it doesn't all boil down to Bethesda. Obsidian just makes great products, and they should be recognized for that. Anyway. Now we move on to our next news bit. We're, we're cruising along here. I don't think this episode will be too, too short, but man, if I got this much to say and then Carrick was here, maybe it's a good thing Carrick ended up bailing out when you think about it. This would be a long episode. All right, entry number three, the Apex Legends Takeover. Man, what a awesome surprise. So over this last weekend, we had learned that Respawn was dropping some type of Titanfall Battle Royale game without Titans, and it was coming out on Monday. What happened was it did get teased on Monday. There was uh, a whole Twitch stream gradually unveiling it. People were bitching up a storm. They are like, yeah, why would you ever make a long teaser event for something that got leaked over the weekend? It's like, well, companies don't plan for leaks, okay? They don't plan for, you know, X, Y, and Z YouTubers. I've said X, Y, and Z a lot this show. But they don't play for these YouTubers to open their mouths or the, this press to open their mouths and, and to put a game on blast when it's not ready to be put on blast. Um, personally, I think the leak helped the game, though. It got chatter going. It got people looking forward to something, and it was so close by that folks are ready for it, and they knew it was going to be free, so they figured, why the hell not, right? It was just a mixture of a lot of things that worked out. And then afterwards, finding out that EA had no involvement in it, I think for folks who were like, eh, Respawn, Battle Royale, not for me. But when they saw EA wasn't involved in this whatsoever, that's when I think a lot of folks turned their head and went, whoa, I gotta, I gotta give this a look. You know, I, I wondered, people were like, oh, it's just another Battle Royale craze that's gonna die out. Give me a break. Give me a break. This game is good. And that's coming from someone who, I played Fortnite when it first, I'm talking when it first launched, like when it was just a wave-based hard mode, okay? The single-player stuff. I played it then, and I thought it wasn't that great. And then I played the Battle Royale mode, and you can look it up, my hot take on Fortnite's Battle Royale. And I thought it was really good. And I said, this could be something really special. Turned out to be that way. And the same thing I am saying for Apex Legends, because Apex Legends does something different. A- You've got the legends themselves. 
having special abilities tied to these characters, that's the future of Battle Royale's evolution. You're going to start to see heroes involved, and I think you're going to start seeing it take more of a turn for a MOBA. By that, I mean you start off at level 1, because usually the game's all about looting, right? You're, you're looting, you're getting your gear upgraded. What if you were able to start off at level 1 with a legend based off of healing, and as you go through the game, you, you collect X amount of loot, you get some XP, and you level up, you shoot someone, you get XP, you level up. As you level up, there you can upgrade the abilities that are preset to your character, make them better, or you can go through these different skill trees and make the best build for your squad possible. I think that's the future for Battle Royale, and I think Apex Legends is the first step into that by introducing heroes that have specific abilities, like Pathfinder, who can use a zip line, or you can use a grappling hook, or you have um, Wraith, who can go into the, the vortex or whatever and, and make portals, and she can disappear for a little bit. You have Lifeline, who has a passive ability, which when reviving someone, a shield pops up and protects both of you. It is tremendous because every hero plays well not only on their own and are fun individually which keeps you constantly coming back but also there's really good team comps so i might say your name wrong but there's bangalore the lady with the shoulder cannon that shoots out smoke grenades and then you have bloodhound who when you activate his ult you can see through the smoke so in a final team battle when things are getting chaotic and you need to make every shot count what better than to disorient your enemies with a smoke cloud that lasts a while and then have your bloodhound activate their ultimate to hop into this mess and clean them all up. And you just chuck nades in there and just create more chaos. There, There's fun creative ways to win that don't resolve to let me build this or let me do shooting that. It, it, it requires a, a layer of strategy. It really does. I mean, and if you combine that with the excellent shooting that came from Titanfall, that, oh man, I mean, that FPS gameplay, it's so good. It's so good. I, I remember specifically in Titanfall 1, which I grinded a ton. I got to that max level, and then I actually stopped playing the game right away. Uh, but I loved Titanfall 1's shooting so much that I did not go into the Titans almost ever. I mean, I did just for fun at, at the end, but I hardly used the Titan because I thought the gunplay was so satisfying and enjoyable. I didn't want to go in the Titans and be this big bulky guy just barely trudging around the map and being put on the radar. I liked outsmarting my opponents, using cool guns, using the melee kills that were brutal in that game, doing jump kicks. Titanfall is awesome. And it's really interesting because Titanfall 1 came out at a time where people were looking for a, the next big Xbox exclusive, right? And it looked like it would be it. And because Xbox wasn't selling a lot of units, I don't think it did all that well. Although it did outsell what I'll talk about now, which is Titanfall 2, which is available on both PS4 and Xbox One. Pretty much got thrown to the wolves because it launched right next to Battlefield 1, which people were more hyped for. But it was also stupid on EA's, to, uh, EA's part. Why send a game out to die? Completely unfair. So that's why Titanfall, or I'm sorry, that's why Respawn did not involve EA in the development of Apex Legends because they were like, let's just let the people decide for themselves what this game is. Let's quietly make it. Let's not put Titanfall in the name and let's release it and see how it does. And it was a smart choice. It removes the brand image of Titanfall, which is often associated with something along the lines, I think, of Tomb, Tomb Raider. Tomb Raider comes out, it reviews extremely well. Except for this past one. This past one was like hit or miss for most. But Tomb Raider comes out. Usually reviews well. But often 
people pick other games because there's just better, more reliable options, more hyped options, I feel. Um, like this past Tomb Raider, released right next to Spider-Man. Tomb Raider, I thought this this was one of the more enjoyable Tomb Raiders. I think it offered uh, an interesting Lara Croft, who is flawed, but makes for a compelling, humanized character. Um, I thought the removal of a lot of the gunplay and focus on puzzles was smart, because it doesn't always have to be a huge shoot 'em up explosive Uncharted clone. Engage me mentally a little bit more. And they do that. I thought it was a lot better in many ways, but it didn't sell as well because right next to Spider-Man. Spider-Man is one of the biggest game of the year. And Shadow of the Tomb Raider? Was that? Wait, what, what was it? Rise of the Tomb Raider, I'm sorry. From 2015? That was next to Fallout 4. Easily one of the most hyped games of all time. I think it's got 25 plus million sales now. Okay? That was Silly. Silly marketing decision, overestimating the power of your IP. Where Rise of the Tomb Raider was great. It was arguably the best entry in that entire series, or that entire trilogy, and it's a lot of people's favorite. And it, it had an exclusivity deal tied to it. That game was sent out to die. And what I've noticed is a lot of people are singing the praises. Man, imagine if you folks who were loving Apex Legends were loving Titanfall, or loved Titanfall 2 as much and, and gave that a shot. You know, that, that, that'd be something else. And uh, when these games are sent out to die, I don't think you can blame consumers for picking the more reliable option. Battlefield 1 came at the right time. It was on the rebound of a Call of Duty that no one wanted, and it looked like a carbon copy of a prior title. So people were like, frig this, I'm not buying that game. Oh yeah, I'm going to my competitor. It's just like I was saying with Obsidian and Bethesda in a sense. There are people who probably would never even blink an eye at a Call of Duty because they're not going to pick it up. But to stick it to Call of Duty... And also because Titanfall, or I'm not Titanfall, I'm sorry, Battlefield 1 looked awesome, they will go to Battlefield and buy that game. I mean, good games sell. That's my philosophy, and I know it's a crazy one. Good games sell. There are sometimes good games don't sell, and that's a damn crying shame. Like Death Row, Death Row needs a sequel. The, the original Xbox title, oh my god, what a great game. I was taking a shower, I was thinking about that game. It is so much fun, and that game desperately needs a sequel, but... I digress. Some good games don't do well, but nowadays, with consumers putting more effort into research, consumers just knowing the the market better, and also companies slowly realizing that like we're not stupid, we can figure things out, and like we're not going to fall for the sizzle reel and and these keyword marketing techniques. It doesn't work like it used to for them, and um, people vote with their wallets. But anyway, I see a lot of folks always. You know, saying, well, where were you guys all when Titanfall 2 dropped, man? And it's like, that game was put in a bad position to succeed. It was not put in a spot to succeed, which is why you see Nintendo, who have games ready for months, still wait to launch a game because they want to put it in a spot to succeed. You can you can have a fully polished product that's great, that you think could dominate all the other competition, but what would be even better than releasing in a month all by yourself? Nothing, right? There's no competition. And you just stand there as a titan on your own. And anyone who joins that month stands to have to compete with you. Unless it's something like a Rockstar or a Call of Duty. Which then, that's so big that they could probably dominate you, right? And you'll you'll want to move your release date. But, you know, a lot of people also say that it's a shame it's not Titanfall 3. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have Titanfall 1, which didn't sell that well. You have Titanfall 2, which sold worse. There is no business sense in making a Titanfall 3 and saying, let's hope this works. There's no reasoning behind it. Apex Legend was the move. 
It was absolutely the move. It made the most sense as a business, and it worked, and the numbers speak for themselves. Because now people care about Titanfall. People have a reason to care about Titanfall. People are invested in Titanfall. The legends are so cool. People want to learn more about these legends. And I wouldn't be surprised if you see Titanfall 2 get a bit of a resurgence. Vince, uh, Vince Zampella, I think his name is, from Respawn, he said that there's more Titanfall coming this year. Some speculate it's a mobile game. Some also said, imagine if it's like a free-to-play version of the Titanfall 2 multiplayer. I thought that'd be a really cool idea, too. I wouldn't be surprised if they took that route. I think free-to-play is the future. I don't think you're going to see paid multiplayer games for much longer. I think we're entering, like, the last uh, era. Of, no, the last, like, couple of years of something along those lines. Because, I mean, look at that. You cannot argue with the fact that Titan... Or Epic... I keep calling it Titanfall. Apex Legends surpassed 10 million players. 1 million unique... 1 million unique concurrent players, too. Those are amazing numbers. And you bet your bottom dollar a good chunk of those people are spending money on microtransactions. Because... I had, a, I had someone who was on the Twitch stream with me, uh, Paperbag Crusher. We're playing. We're talking about how we're enjoying the game a bit. He said, yeah, I enjoyed it so much I figured I'd throw $40 at it. And it's like, holy crap. <laughs> I'm not saying everyone's like him, but holy crap. You know, there's probably a lot of people who did that. My friend Connor, he was playing and he's like, yeah, I'm not going to lie. I threw 10 bucks at the game. And, and while it may not sound like a big deal, if you got 10 million people and you got 75% of them who throw $5, $10 your way, that's a lot of money coming in. That's a lot of money coming in. And with EA stock tanking, this helped EA out quite a bit. Hate to break it to everyone who hates EA. Anyway, I'm glad to see Apex Legends have a takeover on Twitch. It's refreshing to see something new that people are going to be talking about for a while, and I can't wait to see the support be laid out for this game. Now we move on to a very interesting news bit, a title that I didn't expect us to really see mentioned ever again uh but now this kind of explains why dragon's dogma is coming out on the switch and they're going to try to generate some interest on this series because capcom had said that they had the choice to make a dragon's dogma 2 but they wanted to do devil may cry 5 first which seemed to be a good choice devil may cry 5 looks awesome i actually never had a chance to play the demo not that i didn't have a chance to i just I have so many other games to play and review, especially now. Um, and I heard it was like a temporary demo on the Xbox or something. So sadly, I just never took that time to go and download it. But I don't mind. I think part of me wants to be really wowed by it. The reason I say that is because DMC Devil May Cry by Ninja Theory, the people who made Hellblade. I love the combat in that game. It is easily one of the top action combat games I've ever played next to like Metal Gear Rising. I mean, what a great year that was. That was 2013 as well, wasn't it? Wow. And I think Dishonored came out in 2012, right before that. Oof. Man, that was my senior year of high school. And that was a good time. Great games were coming out at that point. Um, but yeah, DMC Devil May Cry. I love that combat system and I was shocked by it because I didn't really pay attention to it. I don't think I played the demo when I did play the demo when that one came out, actually. I apologize. But anyway, this one, I just, I, I like going in as blind as possible. I feel like if I were to play a demo and let's say there was a press event and I went to that and then I played it again and then I played it, you know, th there's just too much early exposure where it can dull the experience. I've been there as a reviewer and you have to remove that feeling from yourself and separate and realize like, okay, the reason this isn't hitting me as hard is because I've seen it three times over. Um, 
That's why sometimes press events can really damage reviewers because they, they see a chunk of the game that's supposed to be experienced fresh or a emotional high-impact delivery that, that gets weakened because you've, you've seen it. Um, but anyway, Dragon's Dogma 2 is what I really want to focus on here because it's interesting that they were deciding between these two. I think it's smart that they want to wait on Dragon's Dogma 2, though. And the reason I say that is for technology purposes. I feel Dragon's Dogma 2 has the chance to do something really special, especially with the rise of Monster Hunter World. Um, and if you have to wait a little bit longer to get the right technology, because what what happened with Dragon's Dogma 1 is you had a, a pretty decent-sized open world. It had vocations, and so you'd have like different types of members on your teams who were mages, archers, and, and, and there were types of those archers and warriors and what have you. And then you also had teammates, which you can pull from like a void, and they were other players' created characters, so you could have like your friend on your team in a sense. And I think the natural evolution of that system is to have multiplayer, and I think the nav- natural evolution of the world is to remove the loading screens and have it be truly open. And I think the natural evolution of the gameplay itself, which was a lot like a Monster Hunter, where you're taking on these big beasts, targeting weak points reading boss, uh, not strategies, but uh, patterns, and taking them down over time. You see Monster Hunter World did that in a condensed space, so to say. You know, the the levels no longer had loading, but they were still level-to-level locations, and these giant hub areas feature a lot to see. Imagine if Dragon's Dogma 2, you wait a couple more years, you get the right powerful technology with new systems like the PS5, the, the next Xbox and uh, PC hardware starts to go up a little bit, and you can make a true open-world game with those types of monsters like you saw in Dragon's Dogma or Monster Hunter World, sorry, I should specify. You have the co-op gameplay, too. No longer is it just, oh, bring your friend in from the void. No, now your friend joins your game, and this is a four-player co-op experience. That would truly make Dragon's Dogma 2... A, um, a revolutionary product and it would look like you look at the previous first entry rather and then you look at this one huge difference maker so I feel like that's why they tried to do it whereas DMC5 I, I will admit I'm not the biggest diehard DMC fan so maybe I don't notice certain things but it doesn't seem I mean it looks fantastic it looks like so much fun so don't misunderstand me when I say this but when I say it's not a huge step forward it could be like a, a, a mid console cycle game and be okay, right? Like, it's not like they had to wait for certain technology to get that done, where I think, like, a vision for um, a a Dragon's Dogma 2 requires more, right? Like, DMC seems to still be that level-to-level, huge battle arenas, get your rank at the end of the level, how much SSS style can you put on this combo, that type of stuff, which is dope, and it fits the series image, and maybe demands less of consoles nowadays it still looks beautiful still plays beautiful it seems but at the end of the day i think dragon's dogma 2 will demand more and so that's why they want to wait on it i mean people are ready to trust in capcom again (laughs) they've been releasing bangers monster hunter world resident evil 2 is doing well now we got dmc5 coming this year hopefully next is dragon's dogma 2 for those wondering if you should look into dragon's dogma 1 uh, the Dark Arisen, by the way, which is the complete edition, pretty much. 
um, and it tweaks a lot of the original experience. Like the original experience, I, I didn't know this, but um, the original experience did not have fast travel, which was one of my gripes of the game. And I remember we talked about Dragon's Dogma in a previous podcast, and I was saying, oh man, you know, this is a this is a real cry and shame because that game was great. And then people told me, no, Dark Arisen actually adds fast travel, and it, it adjusts a lot of what was wrong with that game. Uh, what's strange though is I tried to go back to it. Do I still have it on my shelf? <clears throat> It doesn't look like I do. I think I got rid of it. Um, Dragon's Dogma Dark Arisen is one of the very few games that I've tried to go back to and replay when I had spare time, like in the early, early of this year slash end of last year when I was on vacation, and I just couldn't get hooked. Not because it's a bad game, but I think it's because it's a, a slow roll. And I think it's just because it fit well for the time it released in and, and maybe showed a little more age than I was ready for. Um, it's not a bad game but it's not a particularly great game. Like the narrative is really nonsensical. I, I couldn't tell you a thing about it, but as for the world, the gameplay, that type of stuff will appeal to you. But I think people expect more complete experiences nowadays. So uh, it's a bargain bin game. Now you can get D- Dragon's Dogma Dark Arisen for like 10, 15 bucks easily. And that that's about the right price at this point that I'd suggest it based off how I feel. Um, it's not a wrong purchase to make. Just so many great games are coming out now. I'd say wait for some reviews first and make your decision then. But Dragon's Dogma Dark Arisen, pretty solid title. Hopefully we see a sequel at some point in time. And now we move on over to our last segment. It's looking like this episode is going to be about an hour. Wow, not too shabby. Not too shabby for myself. My voice is already starting to hurt a little bit, just talking like an hour straight. Props to people who run three-hour shows by themselves. I can't do that. I don't think I got enough to say. (laughs) Our longest episode was The Gopher. It was three hours. It's crazy. Anyway, topic five is Disney says it has a good relationship with EA and prefers licensing over publishing games. Now, they go on to say they're, they pretty much are good at shows, movies, creating theme parks, but games have never been their specialty. So they pretty much like to hand over the license and not have to do much with it. And that they're happy. They're happy with the fucking relationship with EA. What? That is insanity. This company has torched your brand when it comes to gaming you're trying to tell me that you're happy about that that this gets you excited about where your brand is at in gaming i mean this comes from the the ceo i think of disney too so any hope i had for disney to turn it around and go okay uh i guess we'll We'll start doing what Marvel does and, and license our, our, not license, but like work with them to create a vision for each game. You know, I'll contact Platinum Games, have them make a hack and slash Star Wars game, a Star Killer or something along those lines. And we'll contact Obsidian, have them make a Star Wars RPG again, maybe a KOTOR 3. Yeah, we'll do this, this, and that. We'll get it all done. Not going to happen. That's a crying shame. And it confirms exactly what Carrick and I were speculating about. I think it was last week, actually that Disney is probably just as big of the problem as EA. Like, EA sucks. EA has mishandled this license time and time again. But guess what? Disney doesn't give a shit. So if you have a company who owns a license and doesn't give a shit about the Star Wars gaming brand, and then you have a company who mishandles that brand because they don't give a shit either, then guess what? Star Wars is going to continue to get mishandled for the entirety of this relationship. There's no way that Disney's backing out based off these comments. If they're really happy with it, um, I don't. I don't see it personally, unless, unless EA 
the rumor is from them that they aren't as big on the relationship for the, or the Star Wars game deal rather not the relationship um, as the old CEOs or CFOs were. So there is the possibility that by possibility I mean like ten percent chance that EA goes, you know what? Let's focus on our own IP. Let's build something special here and leave Star Wars behind after this deal expires. What a godsend that would be. But at the same time, if Disney doesn't care and they just want to license it out and just say, all right, here's the brand deal for 10 years, do what you got to do. Um, that would be, I think, a recipe for disaster no matter who it is, unless you put it in the hands of like a, a capable publisher who knows how to handle a brand like this and has a family of developers underneath them um, that are quality. I, I think of Bethesda in the sense of a, a family of quality developers. I mean, if you have Machine Games, Arcane, uh, BGS, hopefully in a better state that is, but BGS, um, who else? Um, id Software, <clears throat> working on Star Wars games. That would be amazing, in my opinion. But, like, how many other publishers out there have, like, a ton of developers underneath them, right? It's like, I can only think of EA, Bethesda, um, unless maybe, like, a Microsoft or a Sony got a hold of the deal. And and they licensed out to all their first-party developers. But I feel like that would be very constraining on Sony. They no longer would be creating nice, original, new IPs like they have been for years now, but instead pretty much just every company's working on a Star Wars game. Or maybe they just do what they did with Spider-Man. Hey, we're going to have... See, then again, no, because that's because Marvel's involved. So Marvel's picking the developers and working with these companies where Disney's not. Disney just wants to give the license to someone. It's like, see what I'm saying? It's a cycle of insanity. I'm never going to get my KOTOR 3. I'm never going to get it. I swear to God. And it's so, so demoralizing. I mean, how long can you go on about this, though? Disney sucks. EA sucks. There's not much more to add to the conversation than uh, let's pray that the the license leaves EA at some point in time and goes into someone's capable hands that will take good care of it. I'm sure there's a lot of companies watching how this EA brand has been uh, EA deal has been handled and have thought to themselves, "Oh wow, imagine if we had it. Maybe Square Enix. Square Enix can maybe do something with it. They have a good handful of developers underneath them. It'd be interesting to see like a JRPG developed for a Star Wars game." Uh, that would actually be freaking awesome as a JRPG fan, but you know, I I just feel like companies are probably watching on thinking of they could get so much good PR if they were to take this deal off of EA and make it theirs and, and show people how it's done. But anyway, that's all I've got for you guys for this episode of the Ham Radio Podcast. I do apologize that um, I could not have Carrick on this episode. Like I said, something happened with him personally, uh, very surprising surprising for him and um it kept him distracted on the previous episode so he he had told me he's like hey man like i can't i can't do this episode and i was it's totally fine um and so i couldn't get any patrons on last minute as i said earlier because of no overlays so it's just me and my pretty face and voice so i hope you guys enjoyed that and i will catch you guys in episode 190 of the ham radio podcast climbing up towards episode 200 let's see if we can get a special together i'll i'll find out i'll talk to some people i'll pull some strings we'll see anyway thank you guys so much for tuning in and i will catch you guys in next week's episode peace out